Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Tuesday Home Time and already we're in the last month of summer. I'm hoping for some warm weather coming up pretty soon. But before that, Marxist historian Humphrey McQueen, looking at Medicare and beyond, human rights activist for the Philippines, Peter Murphy, with both good and bad news from that country, Professor Emeritus Stuart Riss attended the Palestine Solidarity Conference at Trades Hall, and we'll hear what he'd made of it all, as will Adelaide-based retired QC Paul Haywood-Smith, who travelled there for the conference. And Nick McClellan, journalist and researcher with disturbing news from West Papua. But first, he's back with a vengeance, Mr. Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when, well, weeks since we were last on air, weeks when, no, years. Let's start with years. The Copernicus Climate Change Service of the European Union announced the past eight years were the warmest on record. Presuming, of course, there is such a thing as climate change. Users of the law group at a whopping media know the jury is still very much out on that one. But the government came up with the most brilliant lateral thinking plan to reduce our destruction of the planet with gas and coal, just in case there is such a thing. Without stirring up the end of the world as we know it campaign, it would stir up if it simply called for the great resource behemoths to reduce our destruction of the planet with gas and coal. Brilliant lateral thinking. Put a cap on the super, super duper obscene profits they have been making, reducing them to mere super duper obscene profits, and the great resource BMOS will then cry all over those super duper obscene profits that they can't possibly afford to continue exploring, developing, and providing their frying at the planet, their obscenely profitable contribution too. See? What a brilliant strategy. On the other hand, an investment mob called Baron Joey said climate change, it's real when there's a quid to be made, climate change is good because having less coal mines will increase the price of coal and allow even more super, super, super duper obscene profits for those who own them. And BP for Big Polluter, which advertises its greenwashing, sorry, sorry, green credentials, celebrated the report by announcing it will still be profiting from oil and coal and gas well beyond 2050, but no props. They will be offset by planting a tree somewhere out the back of Bali. Meanwhile, the economic perfidy of the evil unions was exposed by their attacks on the oh-so-neutrally-balanced productivity commission, an essential in addressing slow wages growth for those unions, because caring employers keep telling us productivity is the key, proving workers are just so lazy and unproductive. Yet the bloody ACTU reckons the con mission is stacked with caring business class appointees who provide groupthink, a lack of balance and diversity. Yet to show its neutral independence, the con mission has recommended the power of evil unions destroying this country must be curtailed and estimates the evil, evil, evil maritime unions are costing the economy $600 million a year. What could be more balanced than that? 
So evil, the evil unions that on one day during the break, the Troubler Aussie Capitalist Review had two news stories. One, a hospitality mob called Mantle, real name, which runs restaurants and pub chains and James Squire Brewery, owing workers trillions because its human relations department approved an agreement which bound all workers, denying them of penalty rates and lots of other crippling work practices. So severe, the matter has been referred to the Director of Public Prosecution for criminal charges. And two, a story about spot less for workers facing unfair dismissal claims over sacked workers at an Adelaide hospital. Two stories about non-evil caring employers, yet so evil are the unions that its editorial the same day declared, we must act to smash the power of unions who are destroying the economy. And next to that, a deeply thought through so-called think piece by a former productivity commission chair called Gary Banks, good name for a capitalist, who says the evil unions are afraid of unbiased advice. Unbiased advice like they should be smashed. Problems up at Alice Springs have been solved by former minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect and man of the people. No, no, let's rephrase that. Man of the filthy rich people, Alexander. If indigenous people embrace the advantages of Western lifestyles, they will reap the rewards. Brilliant. No longer dirt poor blacks but now dirt poor blacks just like dirt poor whites who embrace the advantages of Western lifestyles. And Alexander knows all about advantage. The good old Taliban, Taliban women from university, a logical extension of their banishment from secondary school, and then from working for aid organisations, well, working at all really, other than their sole role of satisfying male heterosexual desires, following them being banned from parks and gyms and being forced to wear the full burqa with face veil. All this from the Fun, Fun, Fun Ministry for the Promotion of Virtue and Prevention of Vice. So obviously the problem is that the promotion of and prevention of boys know the presence of women will be an irresistible temptation for men. Therefore, men are the problem. So there's the solution. Ban men. Then women can enjoy parks and gyms and schoolyards and campuses and wear what they like. Come on, Taliban, what's wrong with a bit of lateral thinking? Oh, well, everything, apparently, because then the Taliban, Taliban women altogether. On the great benefits of religious liberalism, the caring business class coalition supremo and would-be big supremo, Constable Peter Duffer, described the sadly lamented Cardinal George Pauling as a great, you know, like, intellect. But, but I'm not sure that was saying much, because from where Constable Duffer's coming, everyone's a giant intellect, like you know. One of Pete's predecessors, tiny a bit more for the bosses, told us George is a saint. We recommend tiny head up the highway to Ballarat and set them straight, explain George's godly perfection. Oh, and Pete says we need more information if we are to vote on whether we recognise the first peoples of this country as people or not. The problem for Pete here, of course, is that when you get information, you have to be able to understand it. Pete also praised as a great intellect and troubler was he another sad, sad loss, serial warmonger Jim Maul and the bad guys, who knew troubler was his security depended 100% 
on sending train killers all over the world, wherever the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world orders us to slaughter the local population and destroy their environment. Who knew spending the public purse on anything but the excitingly and increasingly lethal merchandise of the merchants of death was a waste of those funds and more seriously shows the government is failing in its responsibility to defend us its only responsibility. Big Supremo Anthony Albing Uzi said train killer Jim's contribution will never be forgotten. <laughs> we can only agree. The, sorry, the police are on a recruitment drive claiming applications have dropped dramatically. Unlikely, but maybe there's a bit of real humanity creeping into society. Anyway, they're going to follow up previous applicants who failed the test, which, when we think about it, indicates they must have an IQ of about one, or conversely, more than one. They asked me if I enjoyed framing people, and I said no. Then they asked if I enjoyed saturating them with capsicum and tear gas, and... I said no. So they asked me if I, if I loved tasering people, and then if I enjoyed shooting people, and then if I enjoyed bashing and kicking the shit out of goody, goody, greeny, commie protesters. And? And I said no, no to all of them. So what happened? They said I was the worst applicant they'd ever known. The done it again. Sorry, police investigated a complaint that police had capsicum sprayed a journalist during a protest and found there was no case to answer. So obviously he imagined he'd been sprayed. Over in the US of police disbanded the so-called Scorpion unit after it murdered yet another young black man, but really they had no choice. The entire unit is behind bars. Poor New South Wales Supremo Dominic Parrotbrain copped a spray over wearing a Nazi uniform, but in fairness, having been sprung, he did say he thinks it was a, a bit of a mistake. Whereas that Harry creature said his big-time doll-bludging brother made him do it. He remains as pure as the Virgin Mary. Meanwhile, after supporters of former Brazil Big Supremo Bolsonaro ran riot, US of Big Supremo Joe Biden Capital told them to behave themselves. A bit of patience, he said. Surely you know our record when the people abuse democracy and elect the wrong person, the wrong government. Haven't you noticed Peru, for instance, getting rid of the long-haired commie? So a little patience, and we'll sort out liberty, freedom, and democracy for you. In the week that was sport, Novak's Jokovac turned up and said, he forgives us. Let's just repeat that. Novak says, he forgives us. Oh, but he can't forget. Perhaps we could forgive him if he forgets ever to come back. Playing on the site of working class history handed to the city's self-appointed elite by a socialist state government and propped up with trillions in public subsidies, so the elite can enjoy a little luxurious leisure. The elite showing their appreciation by naming a court after John Kane, that rabid socialist who handed them the site of Yarrabag speakers of political debate and the destination for years of huge May Day marches. Now politics are banned so the masses can enjoy the fun, fun, fun. So clearly banning flags of certain countries we don't like and people wearing or waving those flags is not political. And after every game, the in-depth interviewers asked the winner to tell us how much they love playing here and how much they love us. And surprise, surprise, they all just love us. Gee! 
Then, of course, when they're eliminated, they can't wait to catch the first plane out to the next tournament where they'll tell them how much they love them and that place and love you guys. There was much national mourning led by the publicity machine which jingoistically whips up the expectation that if a player is a true blue Aussie, then we must love her him when a true blue Aussie who in the totally unlikable department is right up there with Novak's had a pull out. So that was some relief. Still, what will we do without those expert commentators? Like when the server is at 5-4, they inform us expertly that the person is serving for the set, something we'd never realise without them. While during a women's semi-final, a US of invaluable expert enlightened we non-experts with the truly in-depth, as a ranker needs this to be a game of tennis, leaving us to ponder what the hell as a ranker and or her opponent, and us for that matter, thought they were playing. Then there was the cricket expert who informed us, I think they'll be trying to put big runs on the board. We'd never have thought of that. Many of the filthy rich hangers-on at the tennis and those they seek to influence, like Anthony Albinguzzi, were seen sitting next to tennis chair Jane Hurd like of the rich, providing oodles of luxurious freebies for the filthy rich, while in her day job as supremo of Virgin the Money Airlines, she is offering oodles of poverty for workers who are complaining that a super generous 2.5% pay offer is a trifle below the inflation rate and therefore a real wage cut. Just as Jane announces a huge profit, showing finally how selfish those workers are wanting to steal that profit from the poor shareholders. Don't forget, one worker's selfish pay rise is one shareholder's smaller dividend showing the only thing that's changed is 22 to 23. Good afternoon. And more of Kevin Healy tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock here at 3CR with City Limits. Solidarity Salon, home of Radical Women and Freedom Socialist Party, has moved to Reservoir. We are a socialist, feminist bookshop and organising centre eager to collaborate with a diversity of optimistic rebels. All gender identities welcome. We're at 113 Spring Street Reservoir, near Regent Station. Drop in or get contact details at socialism.com. Solidarity Salon is a proud 3CR supporter. FreeCR is Radical Radio. Through our on-air content and community structure, we promote real change for workers' rights, gender equality, environmental action, disability justice, and on racism and First Nations sovereignty. Do you want to be part of real radical change? We need you to subscribe. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation, and $300 solidarity. Call 03-9419-8377. That's 9419-8377. Or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. that women make up just 2% of tradies? AMWU Victoria wants to change that, but we need your help. 
Are you searching for a rewarding career with a high value skill set? It's time to consider becoming a tradeswoman. For more information, come to the Hume Women in STEM and Construction Careers and Jobs Expo on Wednesday the 1st of March to kickstart your career. Register at Eventbrite or visit amwu.org.au slash events underscore WIT. The Australian Manufacturing Workers Union Victoria is a 3CR supporter. Today, uh, welcome back to Tuesday Home Time to Marxist historian and author Humphrey McQueen. Humphrey, the title of an article written by you is Beyond Medicare Towards Socialism. Why have you chosen this topic? Well, because at the moment it's one of the big debating issues around the politics of Australia. Certainly internally, obviously taken a, a big drive under the three years of the, of the pandemic. And as with many aspects of life, what the pandemic revealed was what many of us knew all along. And that is what's wrong with the whole system. And it just brought out all the weaknesses, all the injustices, all the inequalities throughout the public health system. What it also did, though, and this, I think, is something that we need to keep pressuring on because it, it hasn't kept going, what the pandemic demonstrated was the importance of preventative interventions and not a curative model, which is what the basic current system has been, is that you let people get sick and then you spend a fortune trying to make them not quite so sick, even if you don't ever get them completely well again. Whereas what we should be aiming at, and we should have been aiming at all along, is to get a preventative model. There have been as we know, a couple of great successes in this area in Australia. One of them was getting people to wear seatbelts. The other is the attack on the tobacco industry, although they, of course, like every vampire, rises from the from the grave and they've now come along with, with a substitute for cigarette in the little vaping machines. But nonetheless, they're two very good examples of how a preventative intervention is an infinitely much superior to any of the curative models that have been on offer for all of those reasons, plus the fact that I've been out there on my own, I think, in many ways, since 1972, in being very critical of the Medibank Medicare model. Right from the start, I said, well, the two things that are wrong with it. One, it is a curative model, and two, and this has got worse and spread everywhere, it is based on flat rate tax. The Whitlam government introduced, reintroduced in a way, flat rate taxation into Australia. And this is, you know, we now have, if there are floods in Queensland, oh, then everyone will pay a a 1% levy for it. And and it's spread to, you know, almost everything. It hasn't gone to the National Disability Insurance Scheme, but I presume there are people up there thinking about how they'd be able to do that as well. That's bad enough. But this notion of flat rate taxes has spread into sections of the labour movement into people who think now that flat rate taxes are in some way a form of progressive taxation. And I'll give you a sad example. Some years ago, when Jed Carney was still president of the ACTU, 
she had to come up to Canberra to go to Parliament and go around and talk to the politicians, try and get them to see some sense about something. And after she'd done that for the day, she came down and talked to a general meeting of unionists and activists. And one of the stories she told was that she'd been up there and she'd had a talk to Clive Palmer. And she said, oh, Clive said how happy he was to pay $2 million for his flat rate amount that he has to pay for his Medicare cover. I said, look, he should be paying $20 million. If we had a progressive tax system, he wouldn't be paying two out of 200. He would be paying 20 at least out of 200. But this mentality, and it's very difficult now, I think. I mean, I find it all the time with people become so accepting of this notion of a flat rate tax for things like floods and health cover and anything else they can think of, that the notion that this is a retreat from one of the great fights that the labour movements had over the centuries is to move away from flat rate taxes into the various progressive rates of taxation. And we're seeing that cut back even in the tax system. So there are those two basic things. The financing of it is at the paying end and at the whole basis of the model that it is putting all this money into curing people when you should put much, much more of it into stopping people getting sick in the first place. So a long-winded answer to your question. Who controls Medibank and who controls the money and where the money goes? You see so much of that money going into radiology, into blood tests, into the, the pharmaceutical industry. And how much of that money does end up going to actually the people that need it? It's interesting that you mention radiation and the x-rays and things. One of the things that's happened in the last 15 years, I think, there was a great racket in people just getting MRIs for this, that, and just being sent off to have an MRI or an x-ray or a blood test or something. In itself those tests are an important part of of a whole version of really preventing people getting sick, of the things getting out of hand before they start. The problem wasn't with that. The problem was that with the medical providers, you know, you've got to go to a GP in order to get a recommendation to get any of these things done. And what we found, of course, what, what the government found was that Sometimes the groups of GPs, and increasingly, this is another problem, that those groups of GPs are now not in individual practice, nor even in a cooperative practice. They're in a corporate practice. They're employees of health corporations, increasingly corporations owned outside the country. So that what was happening was that Here you had, on the one hand, the GP was recommending more and more of these tests to go to people, MRIs and blood tests and things, in which they had shares. And the government intervened to put a stop to that. It's now much harder to get an MRI paid for automatically. I mean, you can still get some kind of, a kind of rebate if you're old or, you know, if you've got some chronic condition. But this general rule was that, oh, you go off and do it for anything. So what they did was to cut it off from the access. What they should have done, of course, 
because people do need those tests and they shouldn't have to pay hundreds of dollars for them, was to break the nexus between the GPs recommending them and the corporates who were then providing them and were giving some kind of kickback, either as a direct payment, the way the pharmaceutical companies have been doing to GPs, or that because the GPs were in some ways shareholders in these providers of these other services like MRIs and the blood tests. So it's a whole complexity of the complexity of how the financial bits of the system are run. If we move across to the pharmaceutical industry, well, there is a whole other sad and terrible story. Not the least sad bit of it is that the ALP government, the anti-Labour Party government in the 1980s, sold off the Commonwealth Serum Laboratories. So that, amongst other things, as we know, when the pandemic started, instead of having a government agency all geared up as the CLS used to be, ready to go to deal with these things, they were floundering around. They had to rely on, because they'd sold everything out, to these overseas corporates. We should never have got rid of the Commonwealth Serum Laboratories and they now got this deal with you know, in Victoria that they're setting up a kind of joint project. Well, like all those things that are called private-public partnerships, and I'm inclined to say, ask people, how many lies can you get into three words? This private-public partnership to set up a, a pharmaceutical research centre down in Victoria to produce drugs and things. We know who is going to benefit from all of those because all of those links between putting public funds in, out of the tax system, into encouraging the corporates to do something, there's no doubt as to who becomes the big beneficiary of that. It should be, as they're saying they're going to do with the electricity, if they can do it with electricity, why aren't they doing it with pharmaceuticals? Take it back under government control. And that public funding of Medibank, how much of that goes to the private medical system? The private medical industry is something that has really only come into into its fall in the last 30 or 40 years. What you had when I was a boy, that your local GP was the family doctor and they were in private practice. There was no corporate involvement in any of that. There were no corporate ownership of hospitals or anything else as there are now. You get governments actually in New South Wales funding one of these corporates to build a hospital. And I, well, God. And then there are corporates impose restrictions on what they're prepared to do in return. So that what has happened is this switch from a lot of individual medical providers towards a whole groups of you know, where we see we we now have several doctors working together. And there was a time in which they were the doctors coming together in some kind of sharing and cooperative arrangement. But of course, more and more of those have been bought up and you get doctors now working for these large corporations. So what you'd have to do to answer your question is to track how much of the, um, of the funds that pass through this end up with 
actually, I mean, they, you know, quite rightly, I think the GPs are saying that we aren't getting enough compared to what we were getting 20 or 30 years ago or even 10 years ago. But the big question is how much of that is not just going to, uh, to the GPs, but how much of it is being taken off as profits by the corporate providers, the corporations to which the GPs increasingly are they just a higher form of wage slave is all they become in there. Now, at the other end, of course, and this has always been a problem, we've got not just the, the actual providers who provide some kind of service, we've got those corporations that have been the so-called private health care. You're also able to pay for something extra. Now, I reject and refuse to use the word private for any of these. These are corporates, and it does their propaganda work for them if we talk about private hospitals, private medical system, private schools. They're not private. They're tax-subsidised, and the left has to wake up to this and stop doing this sort of propaganda work on behalf of the enemy. But what we have to see there is with all of those, and this takes me back to... Another important influence. There's an English, well, the long dead now, a man called Richard Titmus, who was a, a great commentator on all these social welfare and health matters. And he made a fundamental point in the 1940s in relation to what was happening in the United Kingdom. He said, if you have two systems, one run by the government and one run by the corporates, you can bet your bottom dollar that the rich and powerful will make their system work for them at the expense of the rest of us. And God, how we see that in the health system, how we see it in the education system. Where you have two systems, which it's then paraded as choice, would you believe, this is a way in which the rich and powerful get the benefits out of the system and the rest of us have to struggle uh, increasingly even to see a GP and then increasingly struggle to think, can we afford to go to the GP? And if we can, can we afford the pharmaceuticals that are going to be prescribed for us? We've really got these fundamental things. We've got how the system is going to be funded. Is it going to be progressive taxation? Is it going to be a preventative system more than a curative system? And is it going to allow the continuation of a, you know, a corporate sector and of, you could say, personal family doctor system, although that, I think, is just no way back to that anyway, even if it was desirable. These are the big questions which aren't on the agenda because they're talking about, oh, you know, I mean, I think this pressure that they're bringing to get a whole group of medical providers in the one place, I mean, I, I fortunately belong to a, sort of one of the surviving cooperative practices. And you go in there, there are practice nurses, there are physios. I mean, you don't have to go darting from one place to the other, but that's a practice that's left over from, if anyone could remember it, from the days of the Doctors' Reform Society. And even they now can't afford to bulk bill everybody. Yeah, I mean, that's the last 12 months. I mean, they said they just cannot afford to keep even their cooperative practice going. So we do need 
more of these situations where if you go somewhere and you need some kind of treatment, and I mean, everyone you speak to who's had any dealings with them in Canberra speaks so highly of the community nurses I mean, who do marvellous work. If you had to pay a private provider for the kinds of things that community nurses provide for free, you'd be hundreds, thousands of dollars out of pocket. So we do need more community services. We need more of these combination practices of helping the old to stay upright and physiology supports and all these kinds of things. But that is, seems to me, that is around the margins of the big issues. The big issues are how the whole system is funded. Is it aiming at keeping people well rather than keeping them out of the keeping us out of the grave once we get gravely ill? And where is the whole, as you say, the whole structure of the funding system going in relation to the corporates who own the, the practices, the hospitals? And I might say, I discovered when my mother died, they own the cemeteries. There is nowhere safe. Even in the grave, they come and get you. And not only once you're in, they come round 20 years later and say to you, you've been neglecting your mother's grave. You haven't been there. Give us some money and we'll go and do it. I mean, it's everywhere. They're the three big areas that I think the left has to focus on and not just be carried along by having discussions about, well, should we have this little change or should we have that big change? Now, we're not going to get the kind of things that I've been outlining you know, in the next year or two. But if we don't set them as strategies, we don't get our thinking clear about what the system should be like, then we're never going to get out of the kind of terrible situation that most people now, so many people increasingly find themselves in, that we are back in a sense, to the 1930s, when the poor could simply not afford to go and get any kind of medical treatment at all. Finally, Humphrey, how do we compare with comparable Western countries? Badly. Very badly. I know mean, we're always being told, oh, we've got one of the best healthcare systems in the world. Well, if you compare it to the United States, yeah. Canada, no. New Zealand, no. And the United Kingdom, under the National Health Service, really had the best system. There are only salaried doctors, because once the, the kind of Blairites get in and started to impose a corporate model within the national health system, things have not been anywhere near as good as they were. But they are still some of the best in the world. That that we have to get over this thing. That you keep being told, oh. There was a time in which Medibank was wonderful and Medicare was marvellous. It's just that only in the last few years that something's gone wrong. No, it was never as good as many of these other services. But if you compare it to you know, third world countries and places, well, of course it's an improvement. And I suppose if you look upon large sections of the United States as a third world country, then we're doing much better than them. But this is not this model that we can hold up and say, how wonderful it is. The one bit of the system which we do have here for which we should be proud, and it's in other parts of the world as well, is in the way in which we donate blood. 
because, as you know, there are parts of the world, including the United Mistakes, in which people are paid for blood. And it's a medical disaster when it happens for all kinds of reasons. It's a way of spreading diseases and, you know. But here, we have maintained this voluntary system. And indeed, there should be much more of that kind of approach. But there's a wonderful book that Richard Titmus wrote called The Gift Relationship. It's a marvellous statement because he compares countries like Australia, which have a voluntary system, with the ones where there is a financial system. And the arguments in favour of the kind of system that, that we've developed here through the Red Cross, that's what we should be holding up as a saying, well, if we can do it for blood donations, why can't we have this mentality? Why can't we have this attitude applied to every area of our healthcare system? Are you hopeful or not? Oh, well, I'm always hopeful. When the Howard government tried to sell out the public prescription for pharmaceuticals to the giant pharmaceutical corporations over the, you know, the, what is called the, you know, the Pan Pacific Trade Treaty, the one thing that rose up and even frightened Howard off and they had to stop was that people saw that this was going to be the end of any subsidised system for pharmaceuticals in Australia and that that is still strongly there. People understand that. I think people do understand about the importance of the voluntary system for blood donations. People don't want the kind of current system they've got. So when you put these arguments to them and they see what the practical outcomes are in relation to the tobacco industry and to, and to automotive safety, all of these things. But the one big thing we don't have, we haven't touched on today, is the poisonous food industry. The big enemy of public health is the poisonous food industry. Felt, fat, salt and sugar. What a battle there's been to get any kind of sugar tax in Australia. Other countries have sugar taxes. You asked before about how do we compare badly on the sugar tax line. And there's no real mention in any of these current debates about what we're going to do with the healthcare system about fixing up what has to be called the poisonous health food industry. I mean, I sent you down an article. I, well, it was a, actually the lecture I gave, the Judith Wright lecture in 2019, four years ago now almost, dealing with these, all the aspects of, of the health food industry. The wonderful Fiona Stanley makes the point that inequality, what she calls the brain, what we call the brain drain, doesn't begin at the age of five or doesn't begin at the age of 20 when graduates go overseas. The brain drain begins before conception. The kind of wellness of both parents, particularly the mother, and how they're fed through the period, of, throughout all of the pregnancy, these are important parts of what your life outcomes are going to be. We've got to go back and deal with and start with all of these. But these are things that people understand. So when you say to me, am I hopeful? Yes, I am, because people do have that real understanding, that gut feeling that it ain't working, and yet bits of it are, and why don't we extend the bits that are the mentality and the attitudes in those to the rest? Well, we know why, of course, because 
to get beyond Medicare, really, what we're moving towards is towards socialism. And that's the debate that, that we really have to have. Okay, Humphrey, we'll tackle the food issue next time. Thanks very Indeed, much. Michelle. Thank you. Thank you. And you've been listening to Marxist historian and author Humphrey McQueen. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio on digital and online 3CR Radical Radio. Tune in to 3CR Victoria's Pride Street Party Broadcast, a four-hour special event on Sunday the 12th of February from 12 to 4pm. We'll be broadcasting out on the street and featuring the voices of 3CR's queer programmers and guests, including Out of the Pan, In Your Face, PX Farno and Queer in the Air, on topics that focus on queer pride and ongoing advocacy for LGBTIQA plus people. Listen to the broadcast on air or live from the corner of Smith and Mason Streets in Fitzroy. For more details, head to 3cr.org.au forward slash 3CR Pride Party 2023. Have you experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up, be heard, call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter. It's not often we have positive news concerning the Philippines. So today we're celebrating not one, but two. And to explain, I spoke with human rights activist Peter Murphy. So the first one, Peter, on January the 9th, 10 or 11 activists were acquitted on perjury charges. What's the story? When did it begin? Well, uh, about three years ago, a group of uh, leaders of organisations who were being threatened with, you know, through red tagging and, you know, death threats, public statements by various prominent officials that they were terrorists, communists, blah, blah, blah. They went to the court and asked for a writ of habeas something, not corpus, but uh, basically a, a request for all of the files on them to be presented to the court to demonstrate that whether or not they were really some kind of threat. The... Um, National Security Advisor uh, took offence at, at their application. Uh, they won their application as far as I know, but he then charged them with perjury because one of the organisations, the Rural Missionaries of the Philippines, said that it was a registered non-government organisation and he said that their registration had lapsed you know, 15 years ago or something like that. And because this was uh, an error, they had actually committed perjury and all, all 10 of the people from the other organisations were included and they were facing two years in prison if they were found guilty of perjury. And, uh, you know, it's really another classic case of absurd sort of legal action uh, being allowed in the Philippine court system. But eventually, it took three years, eventually a court said that there was no basis to the allegation of perjury. So they, they released from that particular, you know, sort of Damocles hanging over them. And, you know, when we say they're activists, they've been lifelong activists. We're talking about really people mostly in their 50s, 60s and 70s were the ones getting, you know, victimised by the, the state in this case. 
and that's what you've said before, Peter, how they drag this, these things out in the court with the activists who are charged. And, you know, as you say, it's three years. Yeah, that's right. Where is the story now? Are they still facing other charges or are they free? I think all of them are free except for one of the uh, members of the board of Gabriella, which is a national women's organisation. Her name is Tita, oh, it's like Auntie, Elisa Luby. So she's facing another trumped-up charge in a court in Davao, like at the other end of the country in the south in Mindanao. So, again, I think um, we not sure how that's going to go. And, and again, it's, it's a similar sort of experience. And this is still going on right now as well with other people. All of a sudden they're charged with rebellion, the arrest warrants are issued. And it's just a denunciation. You know, it's a bit like uh, being dragged before the Spanish Inquisition or something. There's no need for, apparently, no need for any evidence to be presented to a, a judge before the warrants are issued and so on. So... Um, yeah, I think, uh, as I was saying, I'm just looking, you know, what is the actual charge against uh, Elisa Luby? I can't see it here. Yeah, so I think we can move on to a more uh, immediate case. The um, uh, Secretary-General of the Cordillera People's Alliance, which is another really big uh, organisation of Indigenous people in the northern part of Luzon. Uh, it's a woman called Sarah Deccan. Uh, she's been uh, arrested found guilty, actually, of um, cyber libel because she said on social media that the police were involved in demolishing a monument to Indigenous people's struggle in the 1970s. It was the truth. We're familiar with this sort of thing in Australia as well with our defamation laws, but they're in the Philippines you go to jail as well as you know being fined or given damages and stuff like that. Cyber libel is is a, a weapon that's been used against uh, Maria Ressa, uh, who's you know won the Nobel Peace Prize last year or shared it for her publishing efforts uh, with Rappler, and now. Uh, it's happening to this really, really important uh, leader of the Cordillera People's Alliance. Yeah, that's another case. So, yeah, we've had the good news about the 10, but the, the general picture is the same. What's the story with Maria at the moment? She also had a win recently in court because she was uh, harassed in the sense of a tax case was brought against her, that somehow the Rappler uh, organisation had not properly reported to the Internal Revenue Service of the Philippines uh, and uh, it's been going on for a couple of years as well and the court found there was no basis to the charge. So, you know, it was a, a victory. But uh, people like Maria Ressa and also these ones we've just been talking about like Sarah Dekdekin and, and the 10 from Gabriella and uh, Rural Missionaries of the Philippines and others that, Karapatan, they're all very you know, experienced activists and generally can find a way to persist against the, th the harassments and threats. But, you know, many people don't have the same level of experience and resourcing that, you know, lawyers and stuff that they do. So, you know, this sort of thing happens at, at many levels in Philippine society and some people really can't cope with it. Anyway, that's, that's the picture at the moment. We were hoping that just the opportunity of change with um, Duterte going out of office and Marcos coming into office would allow some kind of adjustment in the Philippines. But I don't think the pattern has actually changed from Duterte's time to now. Uh, we've had seven months 
of uh, the new administration. So that should be enough, I think, to know what's uh, the character of the administration. And there, there are some signs, you know, that it's, it's actually a very different presidency. Um, Marcos is a very uh, lazy sort of character, I think, and uh, really un unattentive to most of the affairs of state, whereas Duterte was hyper-involved and personally taking, you know, revenge on people around the country. So I think the security officials who are continuing through from Duterte's time are uh, flexing their muscle now. They, I think they've figured out that the president and uh, the, the you know, Malacan Young Palace is not going to do anything to stop them. <clears throat> you know, so the culture of impunity is really running strong still. But it does give hope that there are some judges in the Philippines who follow the law properly? There are some, uh, and I think you could say there is some hope uh, in that. But unfortunately, it's not good that a judge somewhere will issue a warrant on, on absolutely absurd grounds and then a person will have to go through years of struggle through the courts before one of these judges pops up and says, oh, this is just a load of rubbish and chucks it out. And so uh, in, a, in a way, you can almost feel like it's calibrated. So this, the occasional judge who does that may be doing it on on advice, you know, not, not on the merits, but uh, they're saying, oh, yeah, let's, let's let this lot go and uh, turning our attention to someone else and, and it'll look good for us anyway if, if we release a few people. So, yeah, I feel it's, uh, it's pretty sophisticated and calculated like that in the Philippines. Is there any hope in the Philippines, Peter, that the, the blacklist might be lifted, like people like you are prevented from going to the Philippines? No. Uh, I think uh, we've all concluded that uh, Marcos isn't going to change that. There'd have to be something really strong statement from the palace for that to, to happen. Instead, you know, the, the persecution of people, the, you know, the, the terrorist tagging, it's continuing in, in a really crazy ways. So, um, yeah, unfortunately, I, I met um, recently one of the priests, uh, actually a bishop from... Uh, Mindanao, who who had to go into exile in Germany, he was really depressed. You know, after after Marcos won the presidency, he said, "Oh, you know, six six more years in exile, it's hard to take." Yeah, I think there's a lot of that feeling around the country, and um, not so serious for me, of course. I'm Australian, but um, you know, it's it's pathetic that uh, a government like any government in the world isn't strong enough to cope with, you know, uh, international visitors coming and seeing the situation and talking about it. So it shows you just how repressive uh, it is in the Philippines despite how it's packaged for the international media. And also reaching here, and I imagine other countries too, to target activists who are working for the Philippines in different countries, put fear in them that they could suffer too? It's quite, not quite as bad as the Iran stories we're seeing in the media right now, but the same mechanism works. So, in fact, this uh, dreadful military police structure in the Philippines called the National Task Force to End Local Communist Armed Conflict, it's the machinery for repressing unarmed civilians, in fact. And uh, they've been visiting every country in the world where Filipinos are in any numbers, and that's a lot of countries. And they've been telling people to report, you know, dob in uh, people they think are critical, critical of the president's uh, policies. 
who are organising uh, migrant worker associations, things like that. So uh, they've come to Australia as well and uh, caused a bit of havoc here. But they, they've been all over the USA twice, as far as I know, to Canada and certainly, you know, and, uh, the Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Lebanon, Israel. Yeah. So they, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a really determined, expensive effort and it's sort of global. So yeah, we've raised our concerns with the Australian government that this is going on, that it's wrong. Um, but we've had no real serious response from the Australian government on that. One more bit of good news I can convey and one more bit of bad news. Uh, on the 28th of January, oh, sorry, on the 26th of January, Invasion Day here, the International Criminal Court announced that it's decided that the prosecutor should resume his investigation of the uh, situation in the Philippines, which was to uh, investigate the crime against humanity of murder under the Duterte government up to... 2019, and um, to uh, also investigate torture and other crimes against humanity committed from 2011 when the Philippines first signed up for the Rome Statutes and therefore the International Criminal Court. This shows, um, we'll turn too slow for me, but uh, it was it's, it's many, many months after the uh, Philippine government requested that the uh, investigation stop on the basis that they've got a good uh, judicial system that protects human rights in the Philippines. So, uh, yeah, the, the ICC found that um, looking at all of that information, they're not satisfied that the Philippines is undertaking any relevant investigations that would warrant deferring the ICC investigation. So that's really good. Uh, I think that it's a signal to Marcos's people that they're not out of the woods and that... Uh, Duterte can't really be protected by them um, unless there's some sort of significant change taking place. And there, there is no, as I've said with his past comments uh, in this interview, there really is no uh, significant change taking place. I don't know how slow the wheels will turn, but the end result of this investigation will be warrants of arrest issued for several people. And, and I wouldn't I'd be very surprised if uh, former President Duterte is not one of them because of his very, very prominent incitement to commit crimes that they're investigating. So uh, Duterte and several generals, police generals and military generals, I, I believe, will be facing uh, these warrants, which will mean they can't really leave the Philippines. And if they do, they will be taken into custody. So uh, that's a, that's be the first really serious international uh, response to this type of brutality in the Philippines since 2007, when it was President Gloria Arroyo got some rebuff in Europe and had to pull her head in a bit. So yeah, that's that's an important bit of news, and I hope the Australian government pays attention to it um, because you know our government continues to finance. Uh, the Philippines national security effort, really, which is at the base of these problems which are being investigated. I just want to acknowledge, Peter, that the role that your international human rights organisation has played in this issue. Yes, well, certainly the action in the ICC began with lawyers in the Philippines taking specific cases to the ICC and them being... Um, assessed 
uh, as to be whether whether it's worth investigating further. And uh, but in 2021, we did a very serious, sustained effort to investigate the full range of human rights violations in the Philippines and compiled a lot of um, witness data and other documentary data and uh, provided that to the ICC as well as to the UN Human Rights Council and as many other governments in the world that we could uh, have a dialogue with. Yeah, I think our effort in 2021 is definitely um, part of the reason why we've got this momentum going with the ICC and the uh, Observer Mission project we had last year for the May elections and, and afterwards in the Philippines uh, also involved elaborating on further violations of human rights and, and that was also presented to the ICC. So they had a sort of uh, independent international view about whether or not the Marcos presidency was going to make any difference, which you know, we, we really said, no, no, it's actually a really bad outcome for the people. Uh, and I think that we're, we're seeing the ICC properly responding in this case to the information they've got. Another dimension of the situation, but I'd like to just uh, say that on the 30th of January, so just a few days ago, the um, leader of the sort of research section of the Cordillera People's Alliance, a woman called Jennifer Hoingan, was arrested, um, I think, on, on the basis that she's uh, a terrorist. She's committed rebellion or insurrection. She's done it with her keyboard by the sound of it. She was one of nine people listed in a, in a warrant issued by a judge in a remote part of the Cordillera, and, uh, it, but it included the, the chairperson of the Cordillera People's Alliance and another very mature leader, Steve Towley. So Wendell Bolingett, uh, Steve Towley are on the list to be arrested and Jennifer is in, in uh, detention now. You know, this is absolutely absurd that people who are very, very prominent in public life, that is, they're not somehow underground or in the mountains, they they are clearly not uh, New People's Army, they're not engaged in any illegal actions, they get targeted this way. And, and a judge just says, yeah, yeah, go and arrest them. Um, and, you know, these offences are non-bailable, so there's no, no way they'll get out of detention until there's somehow a court process which can overturn this, this warrant. Yeah, so there'll be a campaigning going on about that. And I think this would alarm, because the Court of Europe People's Alliance is a very well-regarded um, organisation around the world. I think there will be a very big reaction to this. So I think we in Australia, again, should take note of it. To relatively good news or mixed news, so for for several years, since 2019, the International Labour Organisation has been trying to send a high-level tripartite mission to the Philippines. Um, it was really blocked initially by Duterte, then by the pandemic. There was a sort of uh, virtual, sort of online meeting uh, under the umbrella of this mission in late 2021 which really made no progress. Uh, so uh, January 23 to 26, in-person team went to the Philippines and the uh, trade unions in the Philippines connected to the International Trade Union Confederation all worked together to compile all the cases of uh, murder, uh, red tagging, 
uh, wrongful arrest, uh, other harassments, forcing people to resign from their unions or their unions to disaffiliate from their federations, all of that that was properly compiled and presented to and the the tripartite means a government representative and an employer representative and a trade union representative you know from the ILO level that's in global level and uh, the employer representative came from Australia the union representative came from Fiji and the uh, government representative came from Sweden so uh, the upshot was that they recommended, they supported all the recommendations put forward by the trade unions in the Philippines. And, and there's three key ones. One is that the government's counterinsurgency policy says that trade union activity is an insurgency which must be countered and therefore repressed. So, you know, basically it's saying all trade unionism is terrorism and all parties, including the government of the Philippines and the employers of the Philippines, agreed that that was wrong. So that was one recommendation that that be overturned. That was accepted by everybody. The second one was that all of the cases that were brought up had to be investigated and fixed. Uh, all the people wrongfully imprisoned, released, and there had to be a joint uh, body in the Philippines with enough resourcing to really focus on that and make sure it all happened. So that was also agreed by everybody. The, uh, so trade unions would be part of that monitoring team. And um, the third one was that the president should issue an executive order creating a presidential commission on the uh, freedom of association and collective bargaining in the Philippines to make it clear at a high level, the highest level of the state that the state supports the freedom of trade union activity. They didn't accept that. It's, it's out there to be negotiated, I think, but they didn't accept it. First two were, and uh, you know, the basic uh, truthfulness of the trade union case has now been established, you know, with the ILO and and even with the employers of the Philippines, who are a pretty nasty lot. Underlying it, there'd be different motives, I think, Jan. But I mean, one of them is, you know, it's so grossly outrageous and you know shocking what's going on even in the union sector in the Philippines as well as all those other ones we've been mentioning but on the other hand there's definitely a, a discussion going on that unless there's some kind of concession from the Philippines that they're doing something about human rights that global corporations will will beg off investing you know new uh, funds in the Philippines and therefore there's a sort of economic motive that's more crass you know uh, behind the shift but unfortunately, at the final conference where all of this was sort of put on the table and people were patting themselves on the back, last Thursday, two government officials said, oh, yeah, but what, the, what about the fact that, um, you know, the trade union representative for the Philippines to the ILO is a terrorist? <laughs> they can't, you know, the guy said, they can't help themselves. So those officials who are security officials, they just... Laughing, they're just laughing at that whole tripartite mission, and they, they're not going to be committed at all to the even the two recommendations uh, basically adopted. You know, I think we've got we've got to sort of take a on the one hand, you know, register the victory of you know getting the real story out and confirmed, and then take the cold shower. You know that really it's going to be undermined by the Philippine government and that, that there's another level of struggle now for the trade union movement to try to overturn that attitude, that, that policy. 
And of course, Peter, that outside support for the people of the Philippines is so important. It's, it's really a vital component. You know, of course, nothing would be happening if workers weren't organising trade unions and Indigenous people weren't uh, actually organising their associations or the women's movement and student movement and so on. But, you know, it's such a tough situation that they really need the international backup that uh, we're able to provide to some extent, you know. Over, we've been doing it for a very long time. The shows we can keep on doing it for a very long time. And uh, we are sort of gaining... Um, more traction with the international community of governments that you know the situation really is unacceptable and must change for the better you know we we are clawing our way in that direction and the ICC thing in particular is is a very significant element in that progress so um yeah i think everyone should realize it's the, here we are talking about the philippines this uh what what australia government does, what the Australian civil society does is, is very important and makes it, makes a significant difference and uh, this is also true of many other parts of the world but in our region it's also true, you know, especially Indonesia West Papua, Malaysia Myanmar, Sri Lanka you know, parts of India, there's very very difficult situations for ordinary people because of repressive governments or worse you know, coup d'etats and military operations against civilians, all of that. Well, just finally, Peter, the US involvement in the Philippines, it's long-standing, but what's happening at the moment with the bases? Uh, US Secretary of Defence uh, Lloyd Austin was in Manila yesterday and he announced that the US will be using four more Philippine military bases to station troops and equipment in the Philippines. They already have that access in five other bases and theoretically under a visiting forces agreement signed back in 1999, US has the right to use any Philippine military base. They're nearly doubling their uh, actual presence in the Philippines and it's it's really directed against China and uh, we really in Australia should register that... um, this is uh, another step up in the pressure and the, and the drive towards a military clash, uh, which would, I think, inevitably be a nuclear war uh, between U.S. and Chinese forces. And, and people can see, you know, it would happen. It would be triggered if Taiwan declared independence. You know, so the initiative for when the war might start would really come from the Western side, from U.S. side. And you know, no one should want this to happen at all. And you know, our foreign minister was right to say every effort has to be made to to stop such a thing happening. But in truth, at the moment, the Australian government, uh, even the Albanese government, is not doing any anywhere near enough to do that. You know, Australia is part of the arms race going on in the region, which is all about having a war. Now, for the Filipino people, it really means the Philippines. You know, nine, at least nine places in the Philippines will be targets for missile strikes in such a big war. You know, we, we talked about their real situation so often, Jan. It's um, miserable enough. It's difficult enough um, coping with a uh, rotten government in the Philippines and very, very um, exploitative uh, relations across the country for the people without that happening. So, yeah, it's it's not being done for the Filipino people, and it's a bad move by President Marcos Jr. to 
you know, agree to it. That's that's another, you know, reality check for all of us in the whole region as well as, you know, for obviously for the Filipino people. And there will be, you know, protests and uh, campaigns against this going ahead there. It just seems madness to me with the, the US there virtually fighting this war in Ukraine and now they're arming themselves up for another war. Russia invaded Ukraine and Ukraine's got every right to defend itself and should be helped, I think. Uh, but uh, I'm pretty sure the US view is that that's a real sideshow and that they don't want to be diverted by that, really. Uh, the main game is China and we should really be frightened of that and, and really... You know, take the fe- the fearful reaction uh, to motivate us to do a lot more to stop it from uh, developing in that direction any further. And of course, with more troops and military hardware here in Australia, we become a target as well, even though we're a long way away. Yeah, I think there's clearly this force posture agreement between Australia and the US is now being used to establish completely US-controlled facilities in northern Australia. Particularly, we should all worry about the B-52s to be stationed at Tyndall Air Base uh, since they can bomb China and they can be nuclear-armed and therefore it's a target. Tyndall will be a target because it's a strike base against China. And do Australians really want to have missiles raining down on our territory? You know, it happened in World War II. Uh, with Japan, Japan bombing Darwin, Wyndham, or right across to Townsville, a lot. Uh, and you know, it, the lesson should be really clear. Why would you want to uh, provoke that? Is China really going to attack Australia, um, that we have to preemptively attack them? There's no such real basis in reality for that sort of thinking. Yeah, I think the Australian people have got a lot in common, I think, with Filipino people and others in uh, Northeast Asia, you know, in terms of fear of that, of this sort of thing happening, a war between US forces and China happening. And as you said, it could be a, mil- a nuclear war. It's almost inevitable there will be a nuclear war. Yes. It's a sobering thought. It's a chilling Jewish. thought. It is. Yeah. Thank you, Peter. Okay, thank you very much, Jan. Let's see what we can do this year. Peter, I've been speaking with human rights and trade union activist Peter Murphy. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, the voice of the community. 3CR Community Radio, giving the voice to the community since 1976. Live it up at this year's National Sustainable Living Festival, showcasing solutions to the ecological challenges of our times. Join the sustainability movement for a month of workshops, talks, demonstrations, artworks, exhibitions, films and live performances. Featuring the great local picnic at Royal Botanic Gardens for a big green day out with ABC Gardening Australia's Costa Georgiadis. Full program online, slf.org.au. The National Sustainable Living Festival is a 3CR supporter. Since opening its doors,
because in 1987, Ross House has become an important part of the fabric of Melbourne. The organisations operating from Ross House form an eclectic patchwork of multicultural groups, self-help groups and small community organisations committed to social justice and environmental sustainability. Organisations such as the International Women's Development Agency, Human Rights Arts and Film Festival and the Wilderness Society have all called Ross House home. To find out more, please visit rosshouse.org.au. Ross House is a 3CR supporter. I remember when I last spoke with Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees, he was planning to attend a Palestinian Solidarity Conference early in the new year. And his comment was, I don't know how they're going to be able to make room for all the guests, the speakers, the participants, the workshops and the plenaries. So when I spoke with Stuart about that weekend, the Palestine Solidarity Conference, which was held at Trades Hall in Melbourne, I reminded him of that comment. The plenary sessions that included commentary from people in Britain, Palestine and the United States were were illuminating. So there was a sense of a kind of cosmopolitan flavour. We were getting perspectives from from all over the place. Then there was a kind of um, extravagance of riches because there were so many small groups, uh, options. You could only go to one. There was usually about five. Everything was dependent on which one you picked. So, for example, I went to one on the um, publishing Palestine in the mainstream media, which was excellent, was very, very good. But overall, the very fact that we came together, and it prompted me to write an article which, which said there's only one word we need now to use repeatedly about Israel, about Israel's policies. It says, quote, evil, unquote. So I really got a lot out of the conference, I think. Tell me a bit more about the internationalists. Well, I mean, for example, there was a um, delightful, brave Palestinian woman called Khalida Yara, who been arrested and imprisoned several times by the Israelis, who's now kind of locked into her house. She said she, if she goes out, she's in danger of being shot. She's more or less surrounded by about 500 checkpoints. And so she said, if you want to know what evil looks like, you better come here. You only have to observe what I am experiencing. That was um, impressive. So, too, was the young American lawyer who had been on one of the first vote, first boats to break the siege of Gaza early early on in a, on, on a small fishing boat. She actually got into Gaza. So there was evidence of some brave, committed people around the globe still trying to uh, ensure that the Israelis' desire to repeat 1948 is stopped. Did you hear the Irish person who supports Palestine? No, I didn't. That was one uh, one small event I think that I that I missed. Certainly, there's huge common ground between Irish human rights supporters and Palestine. 
in the same way that um, I guess the theme that um, one of the common themes, apart from that Irish um, advocacy, was that um, the colonialist settler state of Israel has so much in common with the colonialist settler state of Australia. In other words, the, the plight of Australian indigenous people has so much in common with the, um, with the fate of the Palestinians. And then the connections between West Papua, Timor, Western Sahara. Did you catch on to that? Oh, yes, yeah, no, certainly, certainly. I mean, I went to the, I did attend the, an impressive workshop on, um, on Western Sahara and the common ground between the exploitation and abuse of people in West Papua in um, Western Sahara and the struggle for independence in East Timor runs parallel to, gives inspiration to the Palestinian cause. In other words, there's a sort of um, alliance of indigenous, somewhat powerless people around the globe in those countries. What about BDS? How was that tackled? There was a plenary session on, on BDS as being as remaining the most optimistic chink of light for the Palestinian people, that um, far from being eroded in its influence, uh, there were strong arguments that BDS is gathering momentum, it's now more easily understood, more more, uh, accepted by people around the globe, and certain groups have had um, particular victories in, um, I mean, Tom and, Tom and Jerry's or whatever it's called, the, the ice cream, not, not Tom and Jerry, the, um, the American ice cream manufacturers refusing to, um, to operate in Israel and the occupied territories was, was one example. So yeah, there was a certain enthusiasm for, for BDS. It almost got revived in that conference, I thought. And talking about campus and youth activities, how was it when you were at Sydney Uni? Were there groups well, there then and uh, are there still now? I think there was when I was there because we had, the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies was still operating. I was the director of it. Uh, there were 40 or 50 committed, brave, principled students and staff and so we were a base for people in the city. They could use our telephones. They could use our, um, our photocopying machines. That was, you know, um, a hub for, for activities. But, of course, now, in its wisdom or in its cowardice, the university closed down the Centre for Peace and Coffee Study. I mean, I wasn't there when they closed it down, so I wasn't there to resist and to say over my dead body are you going to do this but um, the people opposing the IHRA definition for example on the campus of Melbourne University they need a lot of help because they need a certain amount of advice I mean I I think the behaviour of the Vice Chancellor and the Council of Melbourne University is outrageous but it's outrageous in in local councils and in other universities such as Macquarie, which have, because they're lazy, because they don't read, because they don't think, because they are uh, uncritically accepting of what 
America tells them to do or what Israel does, they accept this appalling definition, which is, you know, a very serious restriction of freedom of speech. So, um, yeah, I think there was optimism when I was at Sydney University and had the center. We could spread activities across the campus and elsewhere. Those hubs for support don't exist anymore. Just explain the significance of universities and other groups accepting this definition of anti-Semitism. I think it's dangerous because what they're saying by accepting it is they are saying that murder and destruction and oppression by Israel is acceptable. That's what they're saying because they're saying you can't, to criticise is to be anti-Semitic. That is a sort of... It's a conceptual nonsense. It's a human right nonsense. It's an act of political cowardice to merely go along with this wretched definition. I mean, there are lots of people, including myself, who've written critically about it and said it's Humpty Dumpty-like. It's like Humpty Dumpty said, said to Alice, things mean what I say they mean. Therefore, any criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic. Well, <laughs> We don't live in democracies, at least. We don't live in that kind of society. But contrary to views about democracy and human rights, these silly, lazy, thoughtless leaders of universities and local authorities and local authorities, local councils who've adopted the IHRA definition, they simply they don't think. They've never been to Gaza. They've never been to the West Bank. They've never had dialogue with uh, thousands of displaced people, mostly Palestinians. It's a cancer. It's a cancer on public life, this acceptance of the IHRA definition. Well, how does it affect those at the university to have that in place? I think, according to the students at, um, at Melbourne, it's meant to stifle criticism of Israel, stifle activities stifle the BDS, for example, the BDS movement on campuses, could be labelled anti-Semitic, which it's not. So there's a certain amount, and, and you know, the, the students, the brave students who are trying to stand up for human rights, stand up for the Palestinians, this is a mechanism for spiking them, for shutting them up. Of course, the other side of the coin it says that Jewish students now feel safer because of the acceptance of the IHRA definition. Well, you know, everybody would be safer if, if there was dialogue with one another, if there was explore, exp, if there was acknowledgement of the appalling cruelty that goes on in Israel policies and the fascist, and I'll be very careful about that adjective, the fascist-like qualities policies of the Israeli government. Your friend Jake was there speaking about the peace and conflict studies. He was part right. of it. What, what was his contribution? Well, his contribution was to talk about to when, he was, when he was prosecuted, not only as an anti-Semite, but as obstructing free trade because he refused to promote the chances of... Um, of an Israeli academic getting a scholarship to um, or a fellowship to come and study at Sydney University. Uh, Jake refused, simply refused to sign 
and um, we were dragged through the courts for about God knows about six months. I mean, the, the, uh, and so Jake described that experience and the and the settlement, the settlement that arrived. The judge found almost entirely in favour of them, or against Shurat Hardin, which was the Israeli organisation which took up the prosecution. So the judge, a very careful judge, found in the federal court found against the Israeli organisation Shurat Hardin. And so, so his contribution was to describe that, that experience. Well, the situation in Palestine at the moment must have laid heavily on the conference. Oh, yeah, indeed, because um, during the conference, I mean, um, the Israeli forces murdered 10, uh, 10 people in the refugee camp, 10 or 11 uh, in the refugee camp of Jinin, and that was followed a day or so later by the young Palestinian shooting dead seven, I think it was, um, Israeli worshippers coming out of a, out of a synagogue on, in, in East Jerusalem. The, the assumption that violence, violence is the only, um, only way to address problems, that was, that laid heavily on us. But so too did the pointless but predictable appearance of the, of the American Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, you know, unwilling, unable to identify what the real cause of the cancer is, namely the expulsion of people from their lands and the continuing military occupation and the siege of Gaza, completely unwilling to to talk about those events and instead just lamely asks for um, violence by both Palestinians and Israelis to, to, to cease. That weighed heavily as well because it's part of the absurd behaviour of the mainstream media to never tell the truth or never speak truth to power about what's going on in Israel. One person put it to me that perhaps he was there to get the order list for some new weapons to replace the ones that they're using on the Palestinians at the moment. Yeah, almost certainly. I mean, the the American arms trade to Israel is... Uh, <laughs> it's a threat to everyone. Well, overall, it was a good weekend. Yeah, it was very constructive. It was very valuable. I mean, it almost needs... I mean, I, I wasn't there for the final morning when they tried to identify what the priorities for the movement should be, but there was a coming together of the of the movement uh, for on behalf of um, the independence of the Palestinian people. Or put it this way, the, the independence of all people through human rights in a democracy. But, um, yeah, I mean, in this, in this recent article where I talked about four words to be used to depict, to depict Israeli policies, that in a way was a fight, is a, is a conclusion from the conference. Those words were cruelty, evil, apartheid, and colonization. We have to constantly talk about Israel as a settler colony, settler colonized country, in the same breath acknowledging so too is Australia. Thank you so much, Stuart, again. Okay, Jan, good to talk to you. And Professor Emeritus Stuart Reese was one of the many participants at the Palestine Solidarity Conference held at Victorian Trades Hall.
St Kilda Festival is back in 2023 with two days of summer fun, Saturday 18th and Sunday 19th of February. Saturday kicks off with a celebration of First Peoples artists, including Christine Arnu, Jem Cassadaly, Dean Brady, and more. On Sunday, the party takes to the St Kilda streets with Hoodoo Gurus, Yothu Yindi, Confidence Man, and heaps more. Free and all ages. See the program at stkildafestival.com.au. St Kilda Festival is a 3CR supporter. I think Welcome to Country is a very dangerous concept and initiative. I really don't know where Welcome to Country even merged from. I know that I don't think it was a, obviously an Aboriginal initiative. I think obviously governments had uh, introduced that as they were pacifying our flag of resistance. Now, the idealism that lies behind that, obviously, is so that white people can feel a sense that they're more guests and they've got a right of ownership and to be here. If we're going to continuously welcome them to country, what that does, it rectitudes the fact of the moral racism issues in which they perpetrate against our people. Because how can we be talking about all these other issues and then compromise a hypocrisy in our own selves to welcome these murderers and these uh, slave traders, this barbaric sense of what they've done to occupy Australia on one hand and, and welcome them on the other. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Hello 3CR listeners, I'm Giselle Hanna from Accent of Women and Asia Pacific Currents and I'm appealing to you to subscribe to 3CR to keep radical voices on air. I've been a volunteer and broadcaster at 3CR for over 20 years and I can say categorically that radical voices like ours that bring you stories of extraordinary, incredible women from across the world leading grassroots struggles Well, those voices just aren't welcome in the mainstream media. You won't hear about the struggle against Samsung's human rights abuses against its workers in South Korea. You won't hear about the plight of the Myanmar resistance against the coup on any other station, at least not the way we tell it here at 3CR. So be a comrade and go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. And continuing on from the program last week, journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. Well, another issue that doesn't get a lot of publicity in our media is the situation in West Papua. There are significant changes underway in West Papua. On the 10th of January uh, this year, the governor of Papua province, uh, Lucas Anembe was arrested by the Indonesian authorities over charges of corruption and uh, flown to Jakarta, the capital. Um, as he was leaving, there was uh, incidents between his supporters and Indonesian police. Three people were shot as he was flown out of the country in January. You know, Indonesia over the last uh, uh, year has been working to create more divide and rule 
within uh, West Papua, the western half of the island of New Guinea, neighbouring, of course, the independent nation state of Papua New Guinea. Some years ago, uh, there was plans to split West Papua into three provinces, and when that special autonomy law went ahead, in fact, two rather than three provinces were created. So Papua province and West Papua province were created. Now, uh, in uh, late 2022, the Indonesian parliament has legislated to create five, not three or two, but five provinces in the western half of the island of New Guinea. And that's really to carve up uh, the province to, uh, I would argue, derail a growing nationalist movement um, that identifies as West Papuan. It has some advantages because of the diversity of the place, but it also creates more sinecures for politicians and elites to be brought into uh, administration, but also into the administration and uh, systems of corruption that have been a, a key feature of Indonesian governance of West Papua ever since they took it over uh, in the 1960s. And so it's interesting that although uh, Lucas Anembe, this uh, a politician who a decade and governor of Papua province since they were created, Anembe is being charged with corruption, um, yet he's been administering a system that was really created by the Indonesian military and Indonesian authorities who uh, are still key players in governance um, in the region. Um, and the Indonesian army, the TNI, uh, operates a whole range of businesses from timber concessions, uh, mining, um, um, a whole range of areas where the uh, the military is very influential there. And um, even uh, although they don't agree with him on many issues, uh, we've seen key leaders of the independence movement in West Papua uh, come out in support of an embe. There's a, a lot of tension on the ground in recent years. Um, you know, the... Indonesian government as they've expanded the infrastructure building across the region, including a major road through the uh, the central highlands, um, which is presented as an economic benefit, but is also a, an opportunity for the deployment of Indonesian police and military forces throughout the central highlands. Very difficult terrain to get through. Um, has led to, to protests, to disputes, um, to uh, atrocities uh, by the uh, Indonesian uh, uh, authorities and police. There's some pushback to that. Uh, indeed, uh, just uh, uh, last month, um, uh, one uh, a senior officer, a, a major in the Indonesian forces, was tried and convicted for the uh, torture and murder of four people, West Papuans, um, which is a pretty rare occurrence where um, the uh, police or military forces are held to account for human rights abuses in uh, in the uh, the rural areas of uh, of the country. There's a lot of pressure, however, on uh, people who support the right to self-determination. Um, as a journalist, I've been particularly concerned about a recent attack against Victor Mambor. Victor, who's of Indonesian heritage, has been a, a really courageous journalist in West Papua for many years. He writes for Juby, which is a locally run uh, a news service, a newspaper, TV service, and so on. And it's been one of the people who's been willing to talk about the uh, uh, issues of human rights and due process in West Papua. He's often accused of being a, an independent supporter, uh, being a secret OPM member and, and so on. That's uh, not correct. He's just a very good journalist who's willing to report on issues that affect ordinary people. 
He's suffered um, in recent years uh, campaigns of harassment, uh, particularly cyber attacks, um, doxing uh, threats uh, through social media. In January, uh, there was a bomb attack uh, at his home, uh, a failed uh, attack, uh, but a bomb went off on the road outside his house. This is as much warning as, uh, as a, a serious attack, but uh, worrying nonetheless that journalists and human rights workers, human rights defenders in West Papua are under significant pressure at a time that Indonesia itself is going through a debate about the legacy of human rights abuses that have gone on under successive administrations, particularly the Sahato New Order regime uh, um, that existed up until 1998, but uh, more recent administrations as well. And Nick McClellan is a journalist and researcher and works with Islands Business. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Travellers Aid Australia is offering free scooter safety training sessions. They will help mobility scooter and powered wheelchair users to practice their skills and build confidence in navigating their local community and accessing public transport. These sessions are delivered by trained facilitators and volunteers and are provided across Melbourne. For more information or to register interest, visit travellersaid.org.au Call on 03-9654-2600 or email info at travellersaid.org.au Travellers Aid Australia is a 3CR supporter. Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit emergency response service committed to assisting wildlife in need across Victoria. Our trained and dedicated volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned animals so they can be released back to their native habitat. If you see wildlife that may need our help, please contact us on 8400 7300. To donate or register to become a volunteer, hop onto our website at wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter. We heard earlier from Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees, one of the many who travelled to Trades Hall in Carlton, for the Palestine Solidarity Conference. Another was recently retired Adelaide QC, Paul Haywood-Smith. Paul was the initial chairperson of the Adelaide-based Australian Friends of Palestine Association and is a patron at this moment. Paul, you and Edie travelled from Adelaide for the conference, but before we talk about that, can I take you back to 1973 and your first time of focusing on Palestine. I was a young solicitor, a famous solicitor in London called Lee Bolton and They were right next to Westminster Abbey. Uh, they acted for the Archbishop of Canterbury, so they were quite, probably quite a conservative then in 73. And of course in 1973, you had the Yom Kippur War came along in October and the British press was totally behind Israel and the Everybody in my firm was taking behind as well. But it just so happened that at the time I was doing a course at the London School of Economics in 20th century international history. And the lecture was not totally behind as well. And he presented to me another perspective, which I listened to, just asked questions, put, put it out there for people in the course. 
um, just got me interested in the Israel-Palestine issue, and and uh, and I sort of kept an interest in it. When the Oslo Accords came along, and I'd returned to Australia by then, you know, I just got more and more frustrated and depressed at the at the way that none of the the timetable for the implementation of Oslo was adhered to, and it was seemed to me always Israel that backed out. That wasn't prepared to uh, comply. So I, I became more and more interested and more favourable to the Palestinian side, and I started to write letters to the editor, which surprisingly in those days were published. I find that today press is very reluctant to write anything pro Palestinian, but in, in those days they were published. So I got a little bit of a reputation in Adelaide for, for, for being someone who spoke out for Palestine and so then I was approached in or about oh, 2003 or four to ask if I would be involved in incorporating a, an unincorporated body or setting up an unincorporated body, the Australian Friends of Palestine Association uh, which I did and uh, went from there so I'm no longer the chairperson of Africa but I'm still its patron and as such, I was invited to this conference last Friday week in Melbourne. And it was called the Solidarity Conference. It's set up by APAN, the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network. It's held at the Victorian Trades Hall, you know, on the Victorian Parade there, at the corner of Lyon Street. Terrific facilities, big rooms for when there was a joint plenary session and then lots of small rooms for workshops and so it was excellent. The purpose of it was to bring together a diverse range of people uh, who are interested in Palestinian cause and to explore the ways that the movement could work better together. And, and they really succeeded because they had people there from every state. Yeah, the ACT, there's even someone from New Zealand there. And a lot of these people were in, from um, associations that only been set up in the last few years, last couple of years. I think South Australia is probably the longest, uh, the oldest association. Oakland's been around for a long time as well, but that's more of an Australia-wide body. No, it was very successful. Just go back a step. You say AFOPA was the first. What was happening in Adelaide at that time? There's a chap called Bassan Daly, who's a, he's a Palestinian, who's born in Haifa, and, and still an Israeli citizen, but he's a lecturer at the university, and, and he knows a, a, a Dr. Francis Nelson and his wife, Merlin, who were in the habit of going to Palestine and West Bank in Gaza and, and working for a medical organisation, I think based in the United States, that, that gives medical assistance to Palestinians. And there's a, a, a young sister over here, who, who's Palestinian, but born and raised in Jordan. And so there's just a, a small group of people who were really interested in what was happening in Palestine, and they wanted to get something moving, and so they approached me to see if I would be prepared to be the chair, and I was, and it's sort of really gone from there. Today, it's quite different. In those days, it was just half a dozen or so people. And we did have the, I would say, the Royal Lecture every year, and we've had some, we had some wonderful people come and speak at us. I mean, people like Mum Chomsky came. Gideon Levy, you know, the journalist with Haaretz in Israel. 
uh, a whole range of people who are internationally really well known uh, and respected in on this issue. So we, we, yearly we kept up the Edward Say Memorial Lecture, which was the highlight of our year. And then when EDS, the Boycott, Investment and Sanctions policy uh, was put into effect, we started a weekly protest in Rundle Mall in Adelaide, and if you know Rundle Mall, the main shopping centre, it's remarkable that we have had something in excess now of 800 continuous weekly protests. And it's, I think I understand it's more than anywhere in the world. The people who run that uh, can be proud of the work that they do. So it's basically Adelaide. <laughs> um, but of course this Palestinian Solidarity Conference wasn't just about Adelaide. It was about whole of Australia and exploring ways to um, improve the performance overall and there was about 150 people I would say attended over the three days and uh, we would have plenary sessions where everyone got together and and then as I say we'd have workshops and go and split up and address specific matters. It wasn't just the people who attended, you say about 150, you also had Yep. internationalists on Zoom for the days. Who was there? Some of them. Well, I'd have to refresh my memory a bit. There's a chap called Armand Zahr, who's a Palestinian-American comedian, actually, he's coming out later this year. Talk about some of the people that you heard speaking and maybe things that you learnt that you weren't quite aware of before. Was there any of that? Yeah, First plenary session was it's interesting because it was on the, the 27th of January, which is what the, the day after Australia Day. The plenary session had a Senator Lydia Thorpe, you know, who's the Greens senator, and uh, others, Kim Bullimore, First Nations activist and academic uh, from North Queensland. They drew a comparison between a connection between their indigenous experience and what they perceived to be Palestinian experience and struggles. Uh, I mean, I was aware of the phrase terra nullius in Australia and, and in Israel, the um, catch cry of the Zionists that uh, Palestine was a land without a people for a people without a land or something, which was just, of course, just rubbish. But, 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 but there were these comparisons drawn, and that was quite interesting. Some of the, um, you know, the workshops. You'd have the 20 people on, in a workshop and, for example, uh, on that first day I went to one which addressed the place of, of Jewish allies in Australia in the fight for justice in Palestine and, and a young Jordi Silverstein, who's a Jewish historian and writer, led the workshop. She's at the University of Melbourne and she you know, spoke about sections of the Jewish community in Australia who are supportive of Palestine, encouraging to know that there are some people of Jewish background who don't accept the Zionist lines. Uh, another plaintiff session on that first day which um, addressed what Palestinians, because there are a lot of Palestinian Australians there, uh, I think out of the 150 odd people, probably at least half had Palestinian backgrounds, and a lot of them young people too, which is interesting because they tend to bring a slightly different perspective than someone of my age. Did you go to any of the sessions where they talked about the links 
between West Papua, Western Sahara, East Timor? I didn't go to that one. They were apparently very interesting. You know, there's a bit of a, a bit of a hard choice because there was about four or five workshops that might be on at the same time, and you just had to choose one. But there certainly was the one on East Timor. You mentioned the young Palestinians who were there. What about other young yep. people who weren't Palestinians? Were there many of those? Some of them, I'm not sure how the interest developed. Presumably at university, and they get to talk with the people of their generation. They become interested in the topic, in, in the issues. Of the young people there, I think the majority were certainly descendants of Palestinians, Palestinian refugees who have a passion. Second day has come into the plenary session which addressed the history of the movement in Australia and as I, I will probably already address that a bit said about um, South Australia there's been a movement in, in Victoria for a long time I mean names like Sonia Karkar and John Karkar who are heavily involved set up um, Sonia Karkar Women for Palestine is the name of the organisation I don't know whether that's still going but because I think it's all been subsumed, perhaps, by APAN in Victoria. Victoria is, is, is a leading, it's probably the leading state, I would say. Other workshops addressed issues such as engaging with the media and, and the deficiencies with the current media and the, the need for change are, are, of course, often advised by journalists that they have made difficulty getting editorial approval for balanced reporting on the uh, on the issue. But I think it's becoming more recognised and hopefully it will gradually change. There's another one on, on the use of social media. Now, social media is not a topic that I'm very good on. I'm, not, I'm of the wrong generation, but um, using social media safely and, and, and how to try and combat the censorship that um, is imposed on the users of social media. I went to a workshop on that session on political lobbying, which was quite interesting because it had some politicians. It had uh, uh, Senator Marine from Rookie, who's the deputy leader of the Australian Greens. I think she's a senator from New South Wales. Tony Piccolo, who's a AOP MP member for the Southern Australian Parliament. They both addressed that workshop, gave some um, good tips on you know, the way to approach politicians and how to get them interested and things like that. And then we had a, a very interesting workshop on the IHRA definition. Are you, are you familiar with the issues associated with that? Of course, that's a matter of major concern at the moment because there's clearly a push from... Israeli supporters to have this IHRA definition adopted well, everywhere they can. I mean, and certainly at universities, I have no hesitation in saying it is sought to be used to stifle any criticism of Israel because the, the examples in the IHRA definition are, are such that they are not clear. There's a grey area, and so people can, it can be asserted that somebody who speaks in a pro-Palestinian way or criticism is critical of Israel is anti-Semitic. Now this 
has been happening in Australian universities where lecturers, tutors and so on are challenged and uh, if they if they say anything which is anti Israel and um, some of them have actually been dismissed from their positions and there's currently I'm aware a uh, move to have the IHO definition adopted by the University of Adelaide. We are in contact with the university and putting in our position but it comes back to us oh, our universities have to be places that are safe. We understand that you know, Jewish students at the university don't feel safe. That said, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but what the thing which really strikes me about it is, well, it's all very well to say that, but what would you say to young Palestinian kids who go to school and go to the West Bank who awake in the middle of the night, trying to get in their homes and throw them to jail or whatever? Do they, do they have a right not to be scared? And, and so people who are concerned about that should be entitled to be criticised Israeli conduct without being asserted that, oh, well, it's going to make you know, Jewish students at that university feel unsafe. And that's a very important issue, and I, yeah, I understand that um, by some universities, I think the University of Sydney has rejected it. I'm hoping the University of Adelaide will reject it. I'm not sure what's happened in Victoria. But that was an issue, and I chaired a workshop addressed an issue that I've found as a matter of real concern in recent months, namely the fact that highly respected international organisations such as Human Rights Watch, based in New York, and Amnesty International have conducted their own research programs and made clear findings that Israel is an apartheid state. Your listeners may think, oh, well, that doesn't mean much. In fact, it means a great deal, and people, I believe, don't understand what it means because apartheid is a crime. No question about that. There's been, there's been an international and international conventions uh, and the Treaty of Rome, which Australia is a party, have clearly specified apartheid as a crime. Now, who is putting the crime? Well, the Prime Minister of Israel and members of the cabinet probably members could obviously be charged and, and might well face charge the International Criminal Court. It's being investigated at the moment. The International Criminal Court is conducting an investigation which is being strongly resisted by the US and Israel. But my point is crime, and the crime is one where persons can be complicit, accomplices. And what really concerned me was after the Amnesty International report, uh, our Foreign Minister Penny Wong came out and said Australia doesn't accept it. I want to know why Australia doesn't accept it. Have they done their own research when the Amnesty International report is 280 pages long, detailing incident after incident, after policy, after law, all these things by which it is found that crime of apartheid exists. And I just would like to know on what basis does our foreign minister say Australia doesn't accept it? Because uh, on my understanding, Australia has done no research of its own. And so far as, as Israel is concerned, I'm, I'm told, well, I'm meant to believe, that the only response that Israel has made to it is, oh, well, Amnesty International must be anti-Semitic. That's it. That's their answer. I think your listeners are more intelligent than that. And 
I believe that it is simply wrong for our government, particularly in circumstances where the Australian Labour Party's national conferences in 2018 and 2021 both passed resolutions that in government the Labour Party would recognise Palestine. Now, it hasn't happened. We've heard nothing. All we hear in, in a bad way is that, well, the Israeli lobby is very powerful. And so, well, if it is, well, I think the Australian people need to know that. They need to know what pressure is being brought to be and why our politicians would just swallow an, an assertion that, for example, Israel is not an apartheid state. It clearly is an apartheid state. And when it is suggested, for example, that Australia might enter into a free trade agreement with Israel, that to me, uh, as a lawyer, is a clear instance of Australia being an accomplice. It would be, Australia would be an accomplice to the crime of apartheid. Most Australian people would want to know that they are a party to a crime. You know, at the moment we're trying to press DFAT uh, and um, the Australian government, we don't accept, the way our government doesn't accept that, that Israel is, has found by Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch an apartheid country. Now, 40 years ago when I was a kid, 40 or 50 years ago, I suppose, we, in my, my generation, we were concerned about apartheid in South Africa and we did something about it. And we ultimately were successful. I would like to think that the current generation of young people and students would realise that this is a major issue that needs to be addressed and uh, that they can do something about. And Paul Hayward-Smith is a recently retired Adelaide QC. He was the initial chairperson of the Adelaide-based Australian Friends of Palestine Association and is now a patron. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.